Happening now, we want to welcome our viewers from across the United States and around the world. This is the EdTech Situation Room. Good morning, good day, good evening. This is EdTech Situation Room, episode number 146 from September 4th, 2019. Papa Knifer's 75th birthday, so big shout out to my father, who's turned 75 today. Got to celebrate with him last week in lovely Great Falls, Montana, but... Ignoring him for just a second, my name is Jason Neifer. I am the Assistant Director and Curriculum Director of the Montana Digital Academy, the state virtual school located in the Phyllis J. Washington College of Education at the University of Montana in Missoula, Montana. And joining me, as always, good evening, Dr. Wes Fryer. Good evening, Jason. I apologize to everybody for our delay. I had a USB-C charging crisis. I forgot my charger at work, and yes, I only have one of those chargers. I actually, I thought I could get this other thing to work, but yeah, not enough power coming for the MacBook Pro. So thanks to my wife, who has generously given up her laptop at the last minute and is foregoing an hour of work on next, you know, tomorrow's lesson plans so that we could bring you tonight's show. What are we going to do tonight here, Dr. Neifer? Well, the Edit Situation Room is a podcast that takes a look at headlines from across the techosphere and tries to shoot them through an educational lens. In other words, we want to find out what's happening in tech and then apply that to classrooms, whether you are a classroom teacher, an administrator, an IT professional, professional development professional, or one of the many varieties of people that help support students across our schools. You can see all the links we refer to and full show notes, you can download copies of the podcast at our website, edtechsr.com. And oftentimes, Wes and I tend to be a little verbose in um, the number of links we share on that document each week, many of which we don't have a chance to get to. So if you just want to see what's on our minds or things that caught our eye on any given week, that is a great time and place to do that. So again, edtechsr.com. But tonight, we want to focus on a series of headlines, lots of interesting things happening. We are kind of leaving the doldrums of summer where there tends to be less announcements about technology. There were a couple of them in July and early August regarding edtech tools, but now we are going into fall pre-Christmas shopping season, and so there's lots of interesting technology news regarding new hardware. So Wes, where would you like to start us off tonight? You know, I think I'll actually defer to you for the first article, uh, since you have actually added a few more than I, and sure. I'm I'm tweeting out our live link now, so go for it. Sure. Well, I want to talk about probably the biggest news for Android nerds uh, this week. Android 10 was released yesterday, Android 10 being the latest edition of the Android operating system the world's most popular uh, operating system for cell phones. Uh, uh, 60%, I think, of Americans are Android users. And the reason why we've talked about it here on the past, is, uh, on the podcast in the past, is because of the number of Google districts that exist in the United States, and obviously the Google phone, Google-based phone, is great for that. Android 10 breaks away from Android's past uh policies of naming itself after dessert. Uh, last year's Android offering was Android Pie. The year before that, Android Oreo. And this was supposed to be Android Q's year. And a lot of people speculate that both to show the advancement of the operating system and because there are really no desserts in the Q library, they decided to go towards this, you know, boring but maybe mature notion of, of numbering the operating systems. Of course, um, a lot of the hand-wringing over the release of 
Android 10 has been around the fact that very few phones actually picked up Android 10 today, which makes it very different from iOS, which oftentimes means most, if not uh, almost all, working devices in the Apple universe tend to get the latest updates when they update to a newer operating system. I've now been on Android 10 for three weeks. I picked up a late beta. I am rocking a Pixel 3a, which is their their kind of medium cell phone, medium uh, quality cell phone that they started selling uh, uh, earlier this year. I was able to pick that up uh, for a song through my provider, T-Mobile. And so I was able to get a beta version of that operating system. And then yesterday I received a notification during the day that Android 10 was officially available and I downloaded it. It's a great, smooth operating system. It works like butter on the Pixel 3a, which is a... um, uh, I guess, lack of a better way of putting it, a scaled-down version of the Pixel 3. Oh, I do not know what just happened with Jason's audio. He has frozen. That One of the things that most people would probably like here is the privacy controls. And I have to say, I'm very impressed so far with the more granular privacy controls available on Android. I would argue, and maybe Wes would probably agree with me here, that Android tends to be, I'm sorry, iOS has been a little more privacy-driven when it, when you compare the two operating systems together. But I've received a ton of notifications in the last three weeks asking me to look at granular settings in individual apps or accessing things like my local data and, more importantly, my location, and ask me what I want to do for that. As an example, this Zillow, which is an app I use, I like to look at real estate prices. Uh, um, I also like to see where my house is in value. It's a hot real estate market in Missoula, Montana, and Zillow is a great app for me. But uh, I received a notification yesterday that Zillow had been tracking, or I'm sorry, had access to my location. I don't want to put too much negative spin on this, but accessing my location, whether the app was open or not. And Android 10 then asked me, am I interested in... Um, uh, having it only access my location when I have the app open, and I thought that was a great granular control that they're allowing to me. I very much see the value in apps having access to my physical location, right, or the location of my phone, but I should be able to control that and also be able to determine whether it's all the time. For example, I'm a Tile user. Those are the little uh, tiny uh, Bluetooth devices that you can stick onto things or put inside your bags to be able to track their location and find them where they're lost. It makes sense to me that Tile would like my location all the time. It doesn't make as much sense to me where Zillow wants my location all the time. And so giving me that access as the end user puts a lot of power in my hands. I'm really excited about that. A couple other articles that I want to point out. A great review in Android Central um, on September 3rd about whether your phone is likely to get Android 10. Part of the problem with the Android ecosystem, and there's a great review of this uh, issue um, uh, from this morning's Verge where they talk about the Android update problem, is that individual manufacturers of phones are responsible for updates which are then handed on to carriers which may or may not roll out updates in a timely manner. And so for me, um, I uh, my my recent phone that I really loved was a, it was a, a LG V20. It was a, a, it's a three-year-old model now. Um, it's the last major flagship phone that has a removable battery, which is why I liked it. It allowed me to do things like put a massive size battery on the back of the thing when I travel 10 
10,000 milliamp hour battery, which had a, at least a, a 36 hour, if not a, a, a 48 hour battery life, even when I was traveling. But that phone stuck on Android 8, got Android 8 a year later than Android 8 was released, and it still hasn't got Android 9, even though that's the promise, is two major updates of that phone. And um, there's a great review of manufacturers there. As it turns out today, the arms are yesterday, the only phones that picked up updates were the Pixel phones, that's Google-made phones, the 1, 2, 3, and 3A in the smaller size, and the so-called XL models, the larger models. And then, very interestingly, the Essential phone also received Android 10 yesterday. The Essential company is a company that was started by the founder of Android, who had left the company in some scandal, I'm, I'm sad to say, but then started his own company, the Essential phone, which was a beautiful phone that was sold at a significant discount account has had a lot of camera problems. And so although that phone has been awesome about updates, it has camera issues. So if you are part of the Android faithful out there and are looking at, um, you know, uh, uh, Android phones or um, uh, thinking about upgrades, take a look at phones that are likely to get the Android 10 upgrade. I have to say I love Android 9 or Android Pie. It was a great update. Android 10 feels a little more step forward as opposed to giant leap forward, but it's still smooth, nice, very advanced, and, and I would say sophisticated operating system for your phone. Is the central phone dead in terms of upgrades? Because uh, there was, they were, wasn't there something I read as far as that they, they were rumored they were going to come out with a new one, but they haven't. And so that's, right. that's you can't get a new one. So yeah, they, well, you can't, uh, well, you can get a third market new one. There, there are plenty of those available. You can buy, well, watch it. We, we may tell you later this is actually a scam, but you can buy them on Amazon and you know, they are still available. They're about $400 and it's totally high end specs. There are, it's a really advanced phone for the price that you get it for. So the fact that they released a, uh, an Android 10 update yesterday says that someone is still around at the essential office, uh, doing those updates. I've also seen those articles and there is a lot of rumors both sides to say the essential will have an essential two and then others that say that they're going to head towards other projects because that's been suggested by founders on Twitter. Um, I will say that if essential does come out with an essential two, I'm trying really hard to stick with this phone for two years. That's hard for me because I jump Android phones pretty, pretty frequently, but I will say that an essential two phone would be a huge temptation for me because of the high end specs mixed with the fact that they release security packs and big Android updates as soon as the Pixel phones are. So we'll see. Okay. Well, um, I have a, a segue to that, which is actually a blog post, but related to smartphones. And one of the best posts and actually Twitter um, you know, conversations that, that I've seen around this in quite a while. And so, um, by the way, if you want to access these show notes, you can go to edtechsr.com slash links. And this, uh, and, and we want to also invite anybody who might be viewing us live to definitely comment, whether you're on Facebook Live uh, or you're on YouTube. We can actually see your comments come in here and we can give them voice. So if you'd like to add a question or comment, we would welcome that. Uh, but this is a blog post from Carl Hooker. Carl was the director of technology and then the director of innovation for Eans ISD down in Austin for years. And it's actually just kind of pivoted to uh, going on the road, as it were, as a uh, consultant, speaker and presenter. But his September 1st on his blog, Hooked on Innovation, is called What Opportunities Are Lost When You Ban Technology? 
And the tweet that kind of set this off um, has 720 likes and 244 retweets, which is which is pretty exceptional in five days. And uh, his contention there is that banning technology is not the answer. Not teaching kids how to use technology and social media at a young age is akin to throwing them in a lake without teaching them how to swim. How will they learn or know how to handle 21st century challenges if we don't equip them with those skills? And so he goes into uh, a nice discussion of what he calls the Silicon Valley executive parent anti-screen argument. We've heard this like, hey, Steve Jobs, you know, never let his kids touch iPads and, and touch screens. And um, then he talks about how they're, there's a contention that they're addictive, similar dopamine release of doing heroin. They're distracting. And then he talks about, uh, you know, whether, whether those are valid claims or not. And then the opportunities for dialogue and conversation that are lost and how we need to teach digital etiquette and wellness and digital parenting, et cetera. So I think it's a great balanced article. It tackles some really important issues um, we've talked on the show before about some of the research around, you know, reading on screens versus reading, you know, print books. Um, there's even stuff in terms of like whether kids should be typing notes or not. And there's like, these are not art. What I'm referencing here is not like this, you know, randomized, amazing study that everyone regards as just the gospel. It was a small study that. As I as I read it, uh, you know, took a look at a class of students and some were taking traditional notes with pen and paper and then others were, were typing and keyboarding. But anyway, this whole arena of conversation around smartphones and do we do we allow them in class? What do we allow students to do? And then how do we help students learn to navigate the world with these incredibly, you know, powerful tools? And I am just continuing to marvel at, um, you know, so much that they can be done on this device and how to do a show like now we're using this website Streamyard. It has to be on a browser. You know, I couldn't just get my iPad or whatever. There's, there's, there's things that you have to have a full blown laptop to do. Um, but increasingly, especially with regard to communication and access of information uh, and even creating, right? There's, there's just tons of stuff that, that can be created. The smartphone is incredible. So any thoughts along those lines, Jason, about digital citizenship and the idea of banning tech and whether that is a valid pathway for parents or schools? Sure. Well, first of all, that I, I think that, that I can speak for both Wes and I when, um, uh, I, sorry, Wes and me, when I say that we both of us have strong curiosities about the impact of tech, positive or negative, but neither of us would be a fan of banning. And one of the reasons why that's the case is because exactly what, what Mr. Hooker is suggesting, that there, in absence of adult voices, kids will do things with tech that are beyond our wildest uh, uh, nightmares in regards to how, how tech can be empowering in the wrong ways. And the example I always use for this is Facebook, right? Remember, when Facebook started a long time ago, it was scary to a lot of people because Facebook was this place where you had to have a college email address and college kids are kind of known for occasionally making bad decisions. And there was a lot of fear around that and, and, and a lot of, uh, uh, FUD, fear, uncertainty and doubt that dominated Facebook. And then in the late 2000s, when, uh, adults were allowed on and then eventually kids were allowed on that were not college kids, something happened, which I call the mummification of Facebook. Everyone Everyone's mom joins Facebook. Everyone's grandmother joined Facebook. Everyone's aunties joined Facebook. And Facebook turned into a dramatically less interesting place to be an idiot. And so as it turns out, when adults 
and kids are part of the same conversation, it tends to lead the tools towards a, a better middle ground for all. Now, let's ignore the fact that Facebook might have been programming us to, you know, to follow Russian election needs. Let's ignore all that for, for just a second, right? That it's obviously a grander debate there. But I couldn't agree more the notion that we cannot, you know, blanket bans just don't do us any good. And they, they uh, avoid and, and, and I say run away from the necessary educational conversations we have to have with kids. Now that said, uh, I, Read Carl's article when 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 it was bouncing around Twitter the other day. Um, I disagree with some notions that that there isn't something we should be concerned about in technology. But for my dollar, I think the answer is that we have to spend more time having nuanced conversations about tech. Right? I've been into some extraordinary classrooms and have one to one iPads with kids that that are uh, a, a, a touch enamored by the screen, but the teacher in the classroom was using their instructional authority to help kids determine when the right time and the wrong time to have the iPad was out. That wasn't banning it or having kids put it away or shaming a kid for being distracted by something since the internet has all the information ever, 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 right? It's just that they use your instructional authority to help kids learn when to put it away. The other thing I would also note is that adults are some of the biggest offenders here when it comes to using tech rudely or in a way that's counterproductive. Um, I have not been in a, or I fully admit I've not been in a physical staff meeting as a teacher since I took my administrative job. So I can't say this for sure, but my guess is it's an awful lot of cell phone surfing going on during staff meetings that is probably not particularly productive, right? And so I think we all have to have a conversation about where can we find the middle ground here? We cannot undo this. We cannot stuff Pandora's box closed as technology is here. So let's have conversations together with our students, with our colleagues, students together, alone, away from from us having these conversations so we can find out how best to use these technologies in a good and meaningful way. There you go. Good, good summary. I concur. Um, what would you like to go to next? Well, let's talk about uh, a little Apple stuff. Um, and uh, again, this goes back to the fact that we are now heading towards Christmas time and um, Apple fans are looking forward to September 10th next week where new iPhones will be announced. And I do think this highlights the extraordinary uh, expense of these devices in that I just don't know a ton of people that are waiting with bated breath for there to be new iPhones so they can upgrade. I know a lot of people in the 7, 8 uh, range that are like, eh, maybe they'll update, maybe they won't, and their update isn't to the newest, latest, greatest. It's actually to a year or two-year-old generation of iPhone. But exciting to hear that Apple is headed in that direction and releasing their new phones, because I think that gives us a good sense of broadly where Apple is going as a company. Wes, are you and your family uh, ready to put five of those in a cart and send them your way? <laughs> no, and I, th I think some of the implications that we're going to have for this is I I don't think Apple, is, well, this is a maybe controversial. I don't think they're going to have the profits coming out of smartphones yeah. with the trajectory we're having. We shared on the show um, a week or so ago, you know, study that, 
or whatever survey that uh, a lot of folks are waiting, you know, four or five years to be renewing their, their phone. So, you know, I'm on a seven plus our youngest daughter is, is on a seven, which by the way, was a used seven that we bought for Christmas off of Swappa for about 200 bucks. You know, that's, that was a deal. Um, but this is the thing we can do now. We can have a really, you know, capable smartphone and, and have it a few generations back. My wife and our middle daughter are still on a six, uh, S and, it's actually working great. I mean, the main thing that I'm considering is, you know, look at these pictures. And uh, I think the first day of school, one of our daughter's friends who has an iPhone 10, you know, took some pictures and they were amazing. I mean, they were the portrait mode and the way that the, the light, you know, it was, it was, you know, sky in the background. It was just beautiful. I was like, wow, what kind of phone did she have? But is that earth shattering? Certainly not to the point of, you know, dropping a thousand bucks to, say, wow, look at my amazing picture. I mean, I remember when the iPhone 4, that was my favorite. Uh, well, that was my game-changing, like, oh, my gosh, I don't need to to have another camera. This can do everything. And so it was, it was pretty spectacular. So, yeah, I think personally that in general, we're, it's a good idea as a consumer to not be just chasing, hey, I've got to have the latest thing. Um, I finally did, you know, jump and get the, the Apple Watch, but I went for the, the Gen 3 model. It's great. Um, I don't think we have to have the latest tech. Oh. So shocking. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, it's it, it you can do it if you've just got all lots and lots of extra money. But functionally, I don't think that is – it's hard to make a persuasive case to say I've got to have this in terms of the latest smartphone or fill-in-the-blank. Well, and then I think that gives a good segue, too, to we mentioned this article a couple weeks ago where Apple was starting to turn on functionality that noted when you had a third-party battery that had been replaced by a non-authorized uh, uh, repair outfit. And I, I two things I want to mention about that. A shout-out to Peggy George, who is our uh, kind of audience uh, moderator, who pointed out, and she's absolutely correct, that uh, even though I was complaining about the lack of Apple stores in my general area, that, you know, an authorized uh, 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 repair outfit would be a good option for me and uh, Mia Culpa, she was absolutely correct. But I would also add that that it seems to me that Apple's starting to realize that, and they, they had a very interesting press release. Uh, this was uh, on August 29th, they noted that Apple is working now towards offering more independent repair shops, right? Whether they're, and they, they, they use this term, big or small, um, that want to get access to Apple materials, like uh, repair guides, and then more importantly, the, the authorized parts for them to be able to then repair iPhones officially, right? With official parts, with official knowledge, so that you wouldn't get a notification from your phone that you have a non-authorized battery. That's, I think it's really good news, and I think Apple's recognizing two things, really. That first, their equipment has never been known as you know, dying after a year, right? I know, well, in fact, I, I know a couple people now that are rocking eight, nine-year-old MacBooks. I'm talking about like plastic MacBooks, right? The that model, and are quite happy with it, and it's going quite well for them. They're starting to run out of operating system updates, unfortunately, because Apple's starting to depreciate what they will update, but the computer's still quite functional. And then also, iPads and iPhones. Um, I still am rocking. Um, I have an iPad 3 that is a perfectly good unit. Uh, it's not getting iOS updates anymore. And then I have an iPad Mini 2 that is also perfectly uh, a serviceable and and you know, not as lightning fast as the new ones, but it doesn't need to be, right? Like that those those do just fine with the, the apps that 99% of people use. And Apple's figuring out, I think, that people don't want to buy a $1,000 smartphone every other year. 
who would probably prefer to keep their phone for four or five years. Um, and you got two geeks on the call tonight. I work with a couple geeks that also aren't upgrading, right? Uh, if anything, they're buying used Apple watches and um, I'm looking at a couple used iPads for my parents, right? And that marketplace is good enough. So I think that you're going to find that everyone, I'm not just talking about Apple, but all manufacturers of tech objects will figure out at some point that, you know, paying $1,200 every two years for a phone is just not the standard market. Yeah. And Apple's making a transition to services, right? And they're wanting to recognize they've got to diversify and any company is going to need to be agile. And um, they're also, you know, very much looking at, uh, you know, markets outside the United States. But, you know, curiously, those are not typically, if you look at India and China, mm-hmm. you know, markets that are just, uh, the, the, the growth potential there is not just in the high end smartphone, mm-hmm. let's say right. that. And so looking at how they're going to, you know, price things and stuff like that is important. Your story about uh, how many screens you have and that reminds me of, uh, of teaching today. So I'm getting to, to teach a couple classes a day now for fifth and sixth grade. And I like to start class off on the carpet, sort of in the front of the room underneath this projector. But today I actually um, had my iPad that I was uh, projecting to a, a television and I had my laptop because I had been editing a web page and then I had my phone. So I had these three screens, you know, that I was actually, you know, using for, for different things and sign of the times. Right. So I don't think that, uh, you know, I'm going to be giving up any of those screens anytime soon. And I think it's a great day for consumers. And it, it also, I mean, I, I tell, told this to my students and re- repeated, I mean, it's, it's the most exciting era of human history ever for so many reasons, especially if you are interested in ideas and you're interested in collaboration and you're interested in learning. Yes, it's fraught with danger. Yes, it's fraught with challenges. But wow, what an incredible day we have with these powerful tools, which are not just, you know, limited to the few who can afford the room size, you know. IBM, yada, 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 whatever. We've just come a long way pretty pretty quickly. Right. Well, and then also, just for all of you that got your start in the 70s and 80s in computing and people were kind of looking at you with a side eye and you said, someday everyone's going to have a computer. Well, you win because that's true, right? Like we have devices in our pocket that are as powerful as desktop and laptop computers and certainly more powerful than the room-filling computers that Wes, you're referring to. So, yeah, uh, it's a tech-driven world. Absolutely. Well, Sometimes we do talk about the downside or the challenges, and I'd like to actually talk a little bit now about deep fake videos and media literacy, because we have talked about these on the show, but this last week, an app was released in China, and you have to have a Chinese phone number in order to download this app. And the articles that I have dropped in are from the BBC News on September 4th, Deep Fake App Causes Fraud and Privacy Fears in China. From the Washington Post on September 3rd, Viral Chinese App Zao, that's spelled Z-A-O, puts your face in place of Leonardo DiCaprio's in deep fake videos. And then an older post from the Washington, from the Washington Post again, but this is from June 12th, uh, Facebook wouldn't delete an altered video of Nancy Pelosi. What about one of Mark Zuckerberg? And I'll just say, by the way, it's not a geek of the week, but go to that link and watch the deep fake video that somebody made because people were mad that Facebook wasn't taking down this fake video that somebody made. They altered it of Pelosi that made her look drunk, but she wasn't. And so that's really foretell. It's, um, 
you know, sort of prophetic for what we're going to see in terms of the way that media will be manipulated. It is being manipulated now to try and shape uh, public perceptions for elections as propaganda. Um, and so this app, Zao, that came out, um, multiple things about it. So number one, there was a, an app called was it called face? What was it called? Face swap. There was one that came out a few weeks ago and the privacy stuff was, Oh my gosh, you realize, you know, you're going to give people, um, all this access to basically you're going to grant unlimited access to your face for people to do, uh, whatever they want the company, um, to do that. And let me see if I can find that. Um, yeah, it was called face app. So, um, that, that was something, that similarly used artificial intelligence. That was one that aged you and it made you look older. So if you were seeing pictures of folks on Facebook or Instagram or whatever, or if you're younger on Snapchat and, you know, here's me, you know, when I'm 30, 30 years older, um, you know, people didn't read the fine print. And once you've, you know, heck, we're giving away our face right now, probably, you know, here through, through YouTube in terms of, of video and the photos that we've shared. But what this app in China allows people to do very readily is just in a few seconds, you know, be in a clip um, that, that was from a Hollywood movie. And what it shows is how quickly this technology has advanced. And again, like this is a warning sign. Uh, this is like these are like red flags going up. Right. Because we're about to have another presidential election in the United States. There's elections going on all the time somewhere in the world. And so the day is over when you can look at a video and trust that it's authentic, just like we're in the grocery store aisle probably, and you've got some kind of tabloid magazines and newspapers that are still there, not even the tabloids, right? Any magazine pretty much is going to Photoshop, airbrush, you know, blemishes and people's face and, and those kind of things. But, you know, one step further, now we have video um, that's going to uh, make uh, – People say whatever they want. So that Zuckerberg example video, I think I'm actually going to share that one with my students. I mean, I'm teaching fifth and sixth grade. So there's some good videos in the Washington Post article and then that first BBC article. But they also reference porn and revenge porn and the way in which, you know, ex-boyfriends, for instance, are taking pictures of, of their, you know, past girlfriend. And then they're being able to create a fake porn video, which then they circulate and use that to, um, you know, in revenge porn to to get back and hurt. And so it's just it's bad. So I guess thinking about the the Carl Hooker video or article that we discussed um, about banning technology and then the whole digital citizenship conversation, I think it's really important that the balanced approach we are going to hear and parents are going to continue to hear and, and talk about you know, these kinds of, of technologies and tools, um, it's going to continue to pose some real challenges for media literacy. How do you know that video is authentic? We see this happening now with war zone, you know, pictures. Like, hey, was that really a, a video coming out of Syria this last week, or was that something that had been manipulated? Even the stuff that's happening in the Amazon, right? There was an article, I don't think I put this one in the show notes, but, you know, there were people that were grabbing videos of fires, but it wasn't actually from the Amazon. It was being repurposed. And so, anyway, these articles highlight the continuing advance of technology and the ways in which deep fake videos are going to not only just be something cute and, oh, look at that, isn't that funny? You know, it's going to be something that will be uh, utilized as a propaganda tool and to try and sway, um, you know, public opinion about things. So, uh, Jason, I know the privacy issues here are important. 
Um, that's also brought out in the article that originally the terms of service like gave this company in China unlimited rights to do whatever they want to. Do you have any advice or thoughts about uh, not just really terms of service, but like app permissions, you know, when you install, install a new extension in Chrome, when you install a new app on your phone, a lot of times people just, oh, yeah, da-da-da, and they're just clicking. So any thoughts about that aspect of um, of these apps in this story or what about deepfake videos? Sure. Well, I mean, I, I think part of this has to be a an educational component, right? Like we, um, I, I this is important to me, right? Like I am extremely interested in this as a personal user, but I, I don't think we've really stumbled yet on how pervasive the the potential of of privacy invasion is to individual users, right? And um, as an example of this, that I was reading today that. Um, you know, that, that certain apps can access, uh, that, that are related to telephony. So things that are, um, uh, for lack of a better way of putting it, are, um, uh, about dialing, uh, using your phone somehow or dialing. So it could be anything, voicemail uh, app or something related to that can have access to all of your contacts. And that's data that's probably not being used by the most reputable of apps, but you download, you know, some, the Android is, is, is a little more flexible than this iOS is. You could actually download apps to replace almost every core functionality on, on an Android phone. And that's all something that you should be both aware of. And then you need to make decisions best for you and need to be empowered as a user to do that. Now, that's something that that it's one thing for, you know, someone like Wes or, or myself to do that, right? Because we have some you know, intellectual curiosity here, and we've also both had our hands on keyboards for, for, for going on four decades now. So, you know, we, we are very used to that and very interested in that as a concept. But the super bottom line is that the typical user isn't. And so I think acknowledgement of, of the difficulty of this, I think utilizing resources, right, helping our individual uh, our end users, whether it's parents, family members, students, colleagues, uh, neighbors, to be able to do this, I think is super important. Wes, that's one of the reasons why it's always been super impressed about you and your school's commitment to bringing parents in and educating them about things, because I just don't know where you're going to get that information. Um, there are some great, um, I, I think that the broad category is mommy bloggers, uh, that are, you know, parent bloggers that, 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 that do this kind of stuff, but you have to go out and, and find that, right? And in a lot of cases, a lot of those folks have great da uh, data, but they're kind of preaching to acquire because who goes out and seeks out parental advice on, on apps with, if they don't already know, um, you know, that they need to be concerned about that. So, yeah, I, I couldn't agree more that it needs to be a, a critical issue we keep attention to. And, you know, media literacy, obviously, it's a big passion for U.S. It's something I'm super interested in, uh, both from a research standpoint and also I'm a former debater myself, as are you. And so research to me is always a critical thing I think kids need to know about. It's pretty hard to send them out to Google, though, if you're not also teaching them one of the top 10, one of the top 50, one of the top 100 results could be something that's looking to disinform you. And you have to be cautious about that. It's not like it was 50 years ago where, you know, a Time Newsweek, U.S. News, and a library full of books was your limited group where you had perhaps an expert or a smart person going in and picking a library and, and, and uh, uh, taking care of a collection that would be the useful resources. It's the Wild West out there. And so I think that has to be a part of the way we approach this. Definitely. I actually switched my mic. Was I getting some feedback? Yeah, you, you sounded kind of like a robot. So I'm convinced that maybe you are a robot, but yeah. uh, in this particular case, you let your, your digital uh, voice cord show. 
Okay. Well, I, uh, I want to switch. We, uh, got some carpet in our house. And so everything is different as far as where I'm at. So sure. thank you, Marta. Marta, I think joining us from Tegucigalpa, Honduras. Pretty cool to have the international, international audience here. Well, we've got about, uh, we'll start a little bit late. So we'll go a little bit past the top of the hour. Um, but, um, I'd like to hit a few more articles. Uh, why don't we look at a couple security ones? I saw that you had put the stuff about Jack Dorsey. So Jack Dorsey, Twitter CEO, had his account hacked. That was covered by The Verge on September 4th. And then I think you put this article about one zero three takeaways from the hack of Jack Dorsey's Twitter account. I had read um, Spam Nation. Uh, let me think of his name. Gosh. Um, author of Spam Nation. Going to... Google, what's his voice? Brian Krebs, uh, leading uh, security researcher. Uh, one of the things I, I read Brian say was, you know, immediately you need to disable uh, SMS as a validation option for your two-step on your um, Twitter account. And then you need to just use an app or some kind of a smart key or something else. So, um well, I didn't actually read the three takeaways. What were uh, what were some of those, and what are your lessons learned from the CEO of Twitter getting hacked? Well, that was a great article. In fact, I think this one bounced around geekdom a little bit. I think I I I, I may, may have stole this from a podcast or two that I'd heard about more about the story over the weekend. But this is an excellent article from William Ormus, um, and he talks about three things you need to think about right now um, uh, to better secure your Twitter account. The first one is that you should check Twitter app permissions. And this is something that you almost never hear about. It's a problem with Facebook. It's a problem with Google. It's a problem with Twitter. It's a problem with most of these platform-like services because, as it turns out, part of the convenience of all these services is they talk to other services. And you can ask it to directly interface with other things in the world. Now, in a lot of cases, there's a ton of advantages to that. As an example, if you've ever participated in Twitter chat, I think tweet chat doesn't really work anymore. It's my understanding. I haven't used the, the tool in a while. I've been part of Twitter chat for a while, but that's an example of a tool that you can log in and you know hook to your Twitter account. It will tweet for you, but in the service of a better organization or some other piece. And so this uh, article recommends that you go in and review all the apps that have access to your Twitter account and delete anything you don't recognize and consider turning off even things that you do. Because every time you hook your Twitter account up to something else, if that something else either doesn't work anymore, it gets bought out by someone else, it gets hacked into, then it can potentially be dangerous for your Twitter account. And if you use your Twitter account, a good example, both Wes and I use Twitter accounts in a professional context. It's an important part of our engagement with the tech community. Um, I don't want mine screaming out spam and would look poorly on me as a professional, especially since I occasionally talk about security with uh, teachers, schools, and districts. Um, it also you know, makes you look less than you really are. The second piece of advice is talks about what you mentioned, Wes, about moving away from utilizing your phone for 2FA or two-factor authentication. And it talks about the scary notion of SIM swapping, which is a strategy used by hackers. Essentially, they walk up to your cell phone provider and say, hey, my name is whoever you are. 
and I lost my phone, so I need to get a new SIM so I can put it in this new phone that I have acquired. And a lot of times without identification, without double um, checking, that, that they will grab your SIM, stick it into their phone, and essentially they become you. And so if you're using your uh, uh, cell number as two-factor authentication, if they have your password, they can essentially log in as you. And then finally, the third potential or third interesting takeaway from this is the fact that uh, this is bad, right? Like this is not a good thing but it could become so much worse, right? Like, it's obviously not super great for Twitter that, you know, CEO was hacked, but they said, imagine for a moment that Donald Trump's uh, uh, Twitter account is hacked and the potential international implications of that. I mean, there have been literally market drops of hundreds of points based on tweets by President Trump. And again, not a politics show, so this is not about whether or not Trump should be tweeting. He is tweeting, which makes that particular account a serious risk, Right. And so you we should be acknowledging the fact that there is with any of these services, you could you could blow off Twitter as a bunch of hot air. And a lot of it really is. But the bottom line is, is that Twitter is an important almost dial tone of the Internet. Right. It's a lot of the heartbeat of conversation going on. And if an account that's important gets hacked, imagine for a moment the Federal Reserve chair, who I don't know if he's on Twitter or not. But, you know, uh, words this man has spoken have in the past caused the market to dramatically increase or decrease, right? And and by the choice of nouns and verbs, right? And if Twitter is is considered a piece there, like, yeah. So be careful is the bottom line. And remember, the security is real. This is not, you know, we obviously are talking about celebrities here, but, you know, it's, it's a real thing. I just looked. Uh, I have over 50 connected apps to my Twitter account. That is crazy. Wow. And I am going to immediately start, start deleting these. So, uh, when you're on the, the laptop desktop version of Twitter, um, the way to do that is to go into profile and then you're going to click account. And then under your account, as you scroll down, you're going to see a link near the bottom, right above deactivate your account and don't click that. Um, that says apps and sessions. And so this shows all of your connected accounts. And some of these are, you know, ancient apps that I, you know, used a long time ago, but then just never unauthorized them. It also shows like four pages. Well, and also this is crazy. I have 27 active Twitter sessions. What is that? And so, man, so some of these have just got to be, you know, duplicated or whatever, but um, yeah, this is a tool any, anytime we have an email account, especially right. And we connect banking and other things to it. I mean, that is vital. It's like the keys to your house. It's the keys to your digital uh, house in terms of your accounts. And if you haven't read these articles. There's, you know, fairly scary stories about, you know, New York times reporters who have been specifically targeted. The scariest stuff is when somebody is, is intentionally targeted. Um, and then things like the SIM swap and, and these other things are possible because it's not hard. I mean, people, I, I got a text message a couple weeks ago. It was really weird. And it was like, Hey, I'm interested in buying your house. Are you da 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 that my name and my address? I'm like, Whoa, what is this? Well, it turns out. And then the next door app, which people are in our neighborhood use, uh, other people had gotten it. And it's somebody who's just went out and bought a list of people's phone numbers and names and then, you know, cross reference those. And then he's actually texting him. It's a 
I don't know if you guys have this in Missoula, but we have like signs around that says, you know, we buy cheap houses, you know, pay cash for houses. And so they're playing a numbers game evidently to just, you know, see if, if somebody's going to allow them to, you know, lowball their house and buy it. But it was creepy and weird to have the, the, the text message like that that had my name and my address from a stranger. And it belies the fact that our phone numbers are out there. People can get them. And so we need to protect ourselves. So I will be following the show, disconnecting a ton of apps from my Twitter account. And then I'm also going to be looking at uh, going ahead and disconnecting my, my phone number. Um, you know, it is one of the hazards and dangers of putting yourself out there. And I'm not saying this to try to discourage anybody from sharing. I think digital sharing is fantastic. I've been the beneficiary in so many ways of generous digital sharing by many, many people. But we need to be aware of the fact that, you know, if you if you talk about a controversial topic and, and the you know, you could be foolish or you could also be unlucky or a combination of the two and, you know, have somebody get angry and upset at you and, and things can happen. So um, I actually think sometimes it's it's good to not be in mainstream media um, because, you know, that just draws people's attention. And if they want to bring things down on you they can they can they can do things with troll farms and crazy crazy things that can happen so be be safe uh and and that those we can all learn from jack dorsey of course he had an army of folks working for him so i think his account was you know restored within like you know 15 minutes or something hacked for that long so all right any other articles we'd like to address here uh kind of kind of quickly um, before we go, there's a couple of Microsoft ones. You want to talk about that? Sure. Yeah, absolutely. And, um, the, in fact, one of the articles, uh, maybe a little bit of a rabbit hole. The first one's pretty easy. Uh, October 2nd, New York City, this is going to be a surface event. Uh, that means new surface stuff is, is released. Um, I've seen a lot of interesting stuff regarding potentially a surface seven, which would be the, uh, you know, the, the, the ultra portable tablet with the, the tiny keyboard that, that it comes with, which is an interesting prospect. I will tell you that I was very briefly considering purchasing a surface go, which is their 10 inch tablet, um, because I wanted something that fitted in my kind of daily carry backpack that I usually will just carry a side bag with me with a laptop in it when I needed it. But I was looking for a very, very small form factor, a tiny form factor to carry along with me and, and consider that, but it only has Pentium chips. And so I'm hoping that maybe the Surface Go will get an update to uh, an i3 is perfectly fine. An i3 with with uh, eight gigs of RAM and 128 gigabyte uh, SSD hard drive would be more than enough for me to jump on board there. But even though it's available at a, a decent price, it's around 500 bucks. Uh, that's a no for me on the Pentium chip. But hopefully more interesting pieces there. The other one that you shared, Wes, and I, I have kind of a, a, a different reaction. Uh, you shared a Forbes article, which warning issued for millions of Windows uh, 10 users. And um, as I'm sure no one is really shocked, Microsoft still can't figure out its updates. And it's turning into uh, kind of an every cycle issue. But the one thing I want to talk about, I'm wondering if you've noticed this phenomenon, is that I think Forbes was sold recently, like it's it's to someone else, and Forbes has become kind of a um, I, I, it's like, 
Uh, say it again. Buzzfeed. Well, yeah, like a, a contributor model where the, a lot of their writers aren't Forbes writers; they're just writing under their piece there. And man, there is a lot of panic-driven headlines from Forbes now, and right. that used to be the gold standard for news, especially in finance and in the world of money. And now, like the, the, the article's true, right? I went through the article. There's truth in it. There are some real issues. Windows got updates, but you know that's it's a little panicky to say that, you know, warning issued for millions of Microsoft Windows 10 users, you know, sound the alarms, ah! And, um, you know, I, I, I found that to be pretty interesting. And, you know, uh, all the companies we deal with, Google, Microsoft, Apple, uh, Facebook, Twitter, I mean, they, they all have stuff that goes on that probably could be, you know, there's a factual headline about, oh, no, that CEO of Twitter got hacked and do none of us are safe. Right. But, you know, like, it's it, there is a lot of panic around this. So just, you know, read, make sure you read all the details of an article because headlines are one thing. Um, the actual details are where the good meat are. Absolutely. And, it, you know, media literacy. And this is a chicken little phenomenon, right? We hear, oh, you know, hack of a million, you know, from Target to Equifax mm-hmm. to whatever. Uh, yes, hacks are happening and they're real, but we shouldn't, you know, allow that to become so normalized that we start thinking, hey, it's not real or it's, it's not a big deal or I don't need to take important steps to try to protect my information and my passwords and, and those kind of things. So um, we did actually make the decision to get rid of the Dell all-in-one computers that we had in the language, what was our language lab, now it's our media lab, and that's where I'm getting to teach. Uh, so I've got, you know, iMacs that are about five years old, but they have solid-state drives, and it is great. Um, I, I love, by the way, not only the fact that we got the solid-state drives in, but we've got the guest user uh, working in there. And that is just so great, uh, in a lab setting where kids are coming in, not to have, you know, wallpaper changes, persistently saved accounts, all these kind of things. Because if you want to go back, if you, if you've been listening to the show for a while or you want to go back into some past episodes, I, I think you'll find some serious whining on my part when we were dealing with Windows 10 updates and, you know, we hadn't updated firmware and we actually had displays, um, you know, ba- almost get bricked and it was, it was a real nightmare. So the meat of that article, which I agree with you is not really, um, you know, the headline doesn't necessarily lead you there is Microsoft's got to figure out its update cycle. And, <clears throat> and from a, a school standpoint, you know, schools need to be really aware of this. I have found in general with Mac OS and, and definitely with Chrome, like I've never seen Chrome users get burned by just leaving your, your Chromebooks on a, a, re, a renew update cycle. Um, right. We have that setting in our Google admin console where our fleet of Chromebooks, which has, you know, I think 200 and something, 260 or something, you know, they, when a new update comes out and it's out of beta, but it's mainstream, uh, they randomly update. And so it's not like all of them hit at once, but that is an absolutely beautiful thing about Chrome. Um, and it really, it may not be affecting millions of users and people are just going to, you know, have a crisis. I think this one was actually a CPU slowdown, right. um, but Microsoft needs to figure this out because it's really important. And as IT professionals, you know, if, if you're in the place of making a decision for your school organization or it's at home, uh, you know, the watchword for Microsoft is really be wary and, and hesitate. That's unfortunate because security typically means, Hey, I want to, I want to keep everything patched because, you know, I've got vulner, there are vulnerabilities out there that, that could be exploited. But 
word to the wise, and it's also definitely a little media literacy lesson there for people to not be swayed uh, and panicked by the headlines because in the attention economy, that is what people want to do is to get our attention, and that may or may not be giving us an accurate perception of the world. Right. Well, and one quick note, um, I will say I, I, I'm a Chrome OS guy. Like it's, it's 80% of my time is on Chrome OS. That said, I do have a desktop at home that I always, I, I, my strategy is always to wipe and reinstall windows when there's a new version of it, uh, because upgrades have been a little problematic for me. The latest version of windows, which is 1904, I think is the number for it is a beautiful piece of software, but right. Like the problem of course is, is that, um, it's going to be updated again this year and the update States just don't, they just feel risky to me. And so, yeah, be, be cautious out there, folks. Uh, I love this about StreamYard. We've got the time that we've been in the show up in the corner. So we did start just a little, little bit after the top of the hour due to my own USB um, uh, snafu there. Uh, shout out to Marta, who did catch the episode live. Yay. We're glad to have you join us and uh, being able to I'm, I'm continuing to love StreamYard, so shout out, shout out as we've got it in the show notes, but to both StreamYard, which is what we're using for our broadcast studio, and then to Restreamio, which is what actually takes this stream and sends it out to both Facebook and YouTube live. Um, maybe we can pick up a couple articles there under Buyer Beware, and then we can do some Geeks of the Week. I put in the second one, which is from Wired on August 30th. Unlicensed signal boosters get a boost from Amazon. So... You know, cell phone coverage is, uh, you know, really kind of varies depending on, on where you are, and it can be spotty. And there's a reason why the uh, FCC here in the United States um, has rules and regulations that they enforce about the kinds of devices that can send wireless signals into the electromagnetic spectrum. Because as a small example, if you've ever, you know, been in a, in a location that has a microwave oven and you're trying to do, you know, Wi-Fi, this was particularly true in the early days, I think with 802.11b, we've gone to higher frequencies and I do not know myself exactly, you know, to what degree, but, but in the early days with those bands, there were things that were causing conflicts and could cause some serious issues. So Amazon has been um, criticized for allowing folks to sell some signal boosters, quote unquote, that actually do not function as they should. And so this article talks about people who had um, AT&T representatives, um, I think Verizon representatives, literally show up on their doorstep saying, hey, you are running some kind of a cell tower signal booster and it is wreaking havoc on the neighborhood. And so people are having to shut these things down. Um, I don't know if you remember the term war driving, but I think that refers to people yeah, yeah, yeah. around with a laptop yep. trying to see who had open Wi-Fi and who they could get into and could they yep. do something on their network. So anyway, this is pretty, pretty interesting as far as, you know, Amazon and the way that they have to police their marketplace. And in this case, you know, make sure people aren't, you know, putting, putting up a cell tower, as it were, you know, in their house that is going to basically in in many cases, maybe un, unbeknownst to the buyer, you know, cause more interference than it actually, you know, does signal strength to, to be able to help out with. Um, you want to talk about your Verge article about the imposter sellers there? 
Yeah, so um, I so I, I find I'm a big Amazon user I, for better or for worse. I sometimes feel a little guilty about it, but the the frank answer is is that you know the next day I can get pretty much whatever I want on Earth, right? So, um, and I you know I've tried to find a middle ground in that I I was utilizing subscribe and save, which meant that that once a month things were were showing up on my doorstep, core things like. You know, toilet paper, paper towels, uh, shampoo once a month in a ginormous box. And I figured out that it was probably as cheap to go to my local big box store and do that. And, you know, had to figure out the gas and blah, 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 blah. But I'm a big Amazon guy. If you're wanting, uh, you know, a personal word problem for math, just kind of sharpen your skills. Right? Well, yeah, that's yeah. A, really, just a fine way to do the math, right? To make sure that I still had it, right? Like I still got it, man. So, um, but it's super interesting to me because there is a lot of interesting products on Amazon, largest marketplace on earth. And there have been times I haven't really been burned by Amazon, but because usually I, I, I have a pretty good sixth sense for these sorts of things, but there's just a lot of products that uh, end up being weird and, and offered that are really trying to scam you. And this article goes into really great detail about how even Amazon's own products have been hijacked um, in order to try to sell third-party items that aren't up to the same quality and take advantage of the reviews of previous items. And um, I'm super interested in that notion because that in the same way that, that we talk a lot about media literacy on the show, I think there's a little bit of shopping literacy and some savvy that needs to go into things. Oh, but obviously, Amazon has a big problem here. It's the world's largest marketplace and you know, which is if it's not the top or the the, the biggest company on earth, it, it keeps trading with Apple um, and sometimes Microsoft for that uh, uh, title. But the bottom line is, is that the world's biggest marketplace is got a lot of scams on it. Some of them even take advantage of things that Amazon's trying to do to further its brand. I would also note that, and I, I don't think it was this article that talked about it. There was a, a few others today I consider putting in there, but it's, it's kind of a rabbit hole once you start thinking about it. But the other piece that's also true is that a lot of people perceive that the Amazon marketplace, it's not too big to, well, it is too big to regulate, right? And that, that part of its problem is that that it's you're taking advantage of its market position for so long and it is the critical providers of so many different kinds of products that it's very difficult to find out um, or root out scams as they exist so interesting article if you're interested in finding out how that process works i encourage you to do that um and uh, you know be savvy when you shop so yeah absolutely i think that shopping is a huge vector for bad actors who want to Put things on our machines, get our IDs, you know, do, do any kind of malicious and nefarious things that somebody might do if they have access to our, our computer or our phone. And I, I remember back to a few years ago, <clears throat> I was helping out with a writing conference locally and helping one of the presenters and we were just getting her laptop set up and went to her web browser and it was this weird wackadoo search engine, you know, and I was like, it was in Chrome. And I said, well, okay, I think you've got something on here, you know, slowing you down. And so it was this, you know, shopping coupon extension. She's like, oh no, that's, that's great. I love that. I get points for da da da. And it's like, there, this is probably malicious. And that's really a litmus test of just, you know, have, have I been, um, compromised is, you know, if somebody is changing your default search engine to something else in your browser, that's a problem. And you probably need to wipe out your machine and, you know, get either take care of it yourself or get somebody else involved to make sure that you are not being taken advantage of. Uh, but Hey, that's, 
this is social engineering, right? There's all kinds of ways people are going to try to get us to install things, click things, um, grant access to go back to the, you know, face app and, and deep fakes and all that. You know, they want to uh, have us not read the terms of service. And it's important that we try to be savvy about those things. Deactivate press authorizations like we were talking about on Twitter and other kinds of things. Uh, and then just be aware, be savvy to the kinds of things you are agreeing to. And especially if something weird happens, you know, get somebody involved who can help you wipe your device, uh, you know, get, get rid of something if, if you uh, have a slowdown or, or whatever. My wife, actually, we totally erased her computer uh, two weekends ago um, because it was being slow, it was being wonky. And hey, man, it's great. I don't know what was on it, but something was on it that was slowing it down. So, do you have a geek of the week for us this week, sir? I do. My pleasure to share one of my favorite productivity apps. It is Genius Scan, available for both Android and iOS. One of the things that is a reality of my life as I travel quite a bit for work um, in context of both my day job and my other engagements in the world. And as it turns out, people like it if you turn in receipts. And I have never been a guy that's kept receipts very well. My big, best strategy has been putting a plastic envelope in my um, uh, bag and trying to stick them in there. But it's really best if the second I get the receipt, I put a scan of it in my phone and send them off to the person that's collecting receipts in my office. And Genius Scan, wonderful scan. I mean, there's, there's hundreds of scanning apps. They're actually built into both uh, uh, Android and iOS now, a, a scanning component that you can utilize. But Genius Scan is a great app. I believe the plus version of it costs $3.99, which is a bargain. And the reason why I like it is because it auto-corrects the size of the document. So if you're kind of askew with the camera, will actually turn it into an actual page size. And then turn it into a PDF, usually in a photocopy-like way, which means the receipt looks exactly the way it needs to look. It plugs right into Google Drive. It plugs right into Dropbox. It, it plugs right into, I think, uh, OneDrive as well. So depending on what you use for cloud service, you can drop them right into like a receipts directory if you'd like, or you can email them to yourself. And for $3.99, it works really spectacularly. So that's Genius Scan Plus on both Apple devices and Android. Fantastic. The pro version actually does cost seven ninety nine, but that oh, is well, worth every dollar. Yeah, to uh, think about all those those features. Uh, my geeks of the week are two of them. Um, I don't know if I mentioned this on the show, but I I love Flipboard, and as I read articles and find things that both I want to go back to and I think are worth sharing, I have a quote, magazine on Flipboard that's free for anybody to subscribe to. And it's called iReading, which is kind of a play on I am reading this, but I'm also on my iDevice, my Apple device. So anyway, it's the iReading magazine free. I got a link to that. And that's just curated articles um, that I have been sharing for years. The statistics on this are kind of kind of cool. Um, see if this can open up because it'll show you, you know, how many folk, how many articles you've done or whatever. So it says I have shared 9,338 stories. There are 623 followers and they have had 500 and oh, sorry, 5,409 combined reviews, which or views, which just means somebody's looked at an article there, but pretty cool there. And then the other thing related to links is something called wonder links. So I have created a new website to share lessons and curriculum and information about uh, the media literacy and digital literacy and digital citizenship classes I'm teaching now for fifth and sixth grade. And so this is a link called Wonderlinks. 
I, I used to call these curiosity links, but basically I've set up kind of like I have for the show where if I, if I tweet with the EdTech SR hashtag, I have a if this then that recipe that automatically grabs that link and um, appends it to a Google Doc. And so that's how I will, before the show, throw a few more links and articles in is I've, I've got them kind of in this, um, this Google Doc and, and then I can move them over. Well, both my wife and I now have recipes set up uh, connected to our Twitter with if this, then that. So if we use the hashtag Wonderlink, it auto posts to a shared blogger site that we have, which is called rwonderlinks.blogspot.com. And then um, I have that uh, basically the RSS feed uh, embedded on the website using a little free tool called Power.io, and they've got some plugins for creating, um, you know, RSS feed embeds. So yeah, kind of geeky stuff, but that's cool. And um, as an example, one of the, the she's teaching third grade, and so she shared this really amazing video. It's from PBS, and it's okay to be smart, and it's called using gene editing to repaint butterfly wings. And I actually showed that to my kids today, and those kind of videos and articles and things like that are like pretty amazing and ways to get kids interested, excited about technology, but also thinking about the different layers in terms of, yeah, that sounds cool, but what, you know, anything possibly go wrong with this as we're like tweaking these genes and trying to say, Ooh, look at the colors there. You know, where does it go after caterpillars? Uh, what is it? Chrysalis, you know, butterflies. Yeah, there you go. So where can people find you, Dr. Neifer? when they are not here listening to our wonderful weekly show? Well, I am on Twitter. I consider it to be my primary social media channel for professional chit-chat. I'm at Tech Savvy Teach. I also work with the Northwest Council for Computer Education, uh, blog.ncc.org, and they are, in a few weeks, releasing uh, a session uh, responses to folks to put in to speak at NCC 2020 in March in Seattle, Washington. Uh, registration open soon. It's www.ncce.org. All right. Excellent. And I am W Fryer on Twitter, my blog, speedofcreativity.org. And if you want to check out some of the things we're doing for class, you can check out my new curriculum and lesson site, which is MD Tech, as in middle division, MikeDeltaTech.Cassidy, C-A-S-A-D-Y dot O-R-G. So we appreciate you tuning in. We're thankful that Marta got to join us for a live show. Please come back. We are typically here on Wednesday nights at 8 p.m. Mountain, 9 p.m. Central, whatever that happens to translate in your own local area. Remember to go to edtechsr.com, check out the audio and video archive, as well as all of the reference show notes that we have discussed. And we will encourage you to remain connected, stay savvy, and stay safe. And, hey, share the EdTech Situation Room. Let others know if you find it beneficial. We would love to get your input and feedback on the show. Have a great week. See you next time.